0: Amen. Well, today is Father's Day, but we're going to stay in our study of, of the book of Nehemiah. We, we've titled this series, Rebuilding Your Future. And uh, the passage this morning really has great application to fathers. I've been so excited about the passage, and I believe it applies to fathers as well. So take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8, if you will. Of course, this is a a book about a man, a godly man. We've already learned many things about him, but we're going to focus this morning on uh, the relationship of fathers and grandfathers and all of us, really, to the scriptures. If you've been with us, you know Nehemiah chapters 1 to 6, the focus is rebuilding the place. It's rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, chapters 7 to 13. Now the emphasis will shift and the focus now is not on rebuilding the city, but on reviving and reforming the citizens of that city. So we move from the place to the people who are in the place. So there's a shift now in emphasis and the mission extends beyond the physical rejuvenation of the place to the spiritual revival of the people so, I've entitled this message this morning, Bring the Book. Or one person I read called the, their title for this message, Rebible. And I like that because there's a revival that takes place, but it's because of the Bible. So, we're going to see that a revival breaks out. Let me read verses 1 to 8 in Nehemiah 8 for us. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. and Beside him stood uh, Matathia, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, Padaiah, Mishael, uh, Melkiah, Hashem, uh, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, or so be it. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jaimin, Akub, Shebatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, and Peleah and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Well, so reads God's inspired and word this morning. There's a story of a, of a woman. And by the way, this is another parrot joke. You know, uh, VBS this week was kind of a theme treasure island. A lot of the parrots played a prominent part. I told the parrot joke last week. The one this week actually fits in with the sermon. So uh, you'll, you'll enjoy this. I think there's a, a woman that lived alone and went to a pet store and she thought this parrot might keep her company. So uh, she comes back the next day and she says, that bird doesn't talk. He won't say a word. So the store owner said, well, do you have a mirror in the, in the cage? She said, well, no. And she said, well, he said, well, get a mirror in there. The, uh, parrots love to see their reflection. That bird will start talking right away. She comes in the next day and said, uh, the parrot hasn't said a word. She said, well, do you have a swing for the parrot? Parrots love the swing. They really love that. And a, a happy parrot is a talkative parrot. So she comes back the next day and uh, she says, that parrot still hadn't said anything. He said, well, do you have a ladder in there? She said, no. He said, well, he'll probably, if you put that ladder in there and he can climb up and down that, he'll probably talk your ear off. So the woman buys the ladder, takes it home, installs it. The next morning when the store opens, the, the, the store owner arrives, the woman's there waiting for him. And from the look of her face, he can tell that something's wrong. He says, didn't your parrot like the ladder? And the lady said, no. She said, the parrot died. And the guy says, well, I'm sorry, he says, did the parrot ever say anything before he died? She said, yeah, in a weak little voice, right as he was dying, he says, don't they sell any bird seed at that pet store? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I like that story because it it is, in many ways, a picture of many churches today. Uh, They have all the mirrors and the ladders and all the swings and all the bells and the whistles, but they don't have any spiritual food for the people who are there. Uh, The people are going hungry. They, They need some spiritual food for their soul. The people are starving to death spiritually. Above everything else, you and I, the people of God, we need the Word of God in our lives. Let me just say this this morning about this church. It doesn't matter what else is present here at Faith Bible Church if the Word of God is absent. Everything else is secondary and subservient to the Word of God. And the job of every pastor is to bring the book to feed the people of God, the word of God. And Ezra models that for us here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah, is a, Nehemiah chapter 8 here is a model of biblical ministry for us. The scene models for us not only what the pastor is to do, but what the people are to do as well. It models for us how the pastor is to preach the word, but also how the people are to listen to and receive and respond uh, to the word of God. So I'm going to unpack these verses under two very simple headings you can see in your outline, the preacher, that is what the preacher does, and then the people, or what the people are to do. Now I want to open by looking here at the preacher. The preacher. Notice they gathered together. There is one man in the square at the water gate. This was one of the gates there in the city of Jerusalem. And notice the gathering was initiated by the people. The leaders didn't gather the people. They gathered on their own. And most commentators, most scholars say there were probably thirty to 50,000 people who were gathered there. And as we read this morning, you see that it was men, women, and children who were old enough to understand what was being stated. Now, it doesn't tell us here why they gathered together, but it was probably in honor of the Feast of Trumpets. At the end of verse 2, it says it was the first day of the seventh month. Now, the seventh month in Israel was the month Tishri, and it was basically the fall feast month. You had four feasts in the spring, three Jewish feasts in the fall. They were all in Tishri in that month. It kind of corresponds to our September, October. And so, this was a great time of heightened expectation of the people. Uh, the first day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets. The 10th day was the, the uh, Day of Atonement. And 15, the 15th to the 21st were the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. So, the first day of the seventh month was, was, was Rosh Hashanah, uh, the, the Jewish New Year's Day. So, the people were gathering on the Feast of Trumpets on Rosh Hashanah for probably a, like a New Year's Day gathering or festival or celebration. Now, the preacher here is a man named Ezra. Um, It's interesting as we go through the book now, Nehemiah is going to kind of go off center stage and Ezra is going to come in the spotlight. The book begins to move from first person of Nehemiah talking about himself and what he's doing to the third person. Now, this is the first mention of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. Obviously, the book right before this in the Old Testament is the book of Ezra that's all about uh, this man, and really, they were one book when they were originally written. But, But Ezra led a return of the people back to Judah 14 years before Nehemiah came back. So he's been kind of a spiritual leader to the exiles during this time. He's a great channel and catalyst for revival. Uh, Look back in Ezra. Just turn a few pages back in your Bible to Ezra chapter 7. And I just want to read you one thing that I think will summarize the life of Ezra for us uh, beautifully. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9, the very end of the verse. Ezra chapter 7 verse 9. It says about Ezra, the good hand of his God was upon him. I don't know about you, but I want the hand of God to be upon my life. Notice what it says. The good hand of God was upon him for or because. This is why God's hand was on him. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. The hand of God was upon Ezra's life because he studied the Bible. Notice what does it say he did next. He practiced it. He lived it out. And then he taught it to others. That's an important order. You study it. You practice it, you teach it to others. This is a great pattern for fathers and grandfathers here today. You want God's hand of blessing, you want the good hand of God to be upon your life, to be upon your business, to be upon your family and your children and your grandchildren. I mean, I do. I want that more than anything. And he says here to do that, study the Word of God, apply it to your life, teach it to others, teach it to your family. Now the people back here in in Nehemiah chapter 8, they believe that the word that's going to be taught to them is the very word of God. Notice in verse 1, they said, bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord gave to Israel. So they believe that uh, this wasn't the words just of Moses, this was the very word of God. And I like what B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, said many years ago. The Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And that's what I believe. I believe that, that this book is the word of God in such a way that when this book speaks, God speaks. And so the people call. We want the the Word of God to be read to us. We believe that's what it is. And it's called here a a book. Bring the book of the law of Moses. It's also called a book in verse 5. He opened the book. Now, it wouldn't have been a book like we have today that's bound like this. It would have been a scroll, a large scroll that was unrolled. And it would have been uh, probably primarily the books of the law, the Torah, of, of Hebrew Bible, of those first five books of our Old Testament. One thing that's fascinating to me is in verses 1 through 12, there are eight references to the book, either the book, or it's called the scroll, or it's called the law, or sometimes it's just the word it that's referring to the book, but eight references here to the Scripture. Clearly, that is the focal point of what's happening. And they build a wooden podium in verse 4. Um, Literally, the word in the Hebrew is a tower. So kind of like this, like a wooden podium or a tower that's built. And it was a platform also that was built like I'm standing on. It was large enough for for the 13 helpers listed there of of Ezra to stand there with him. And so you have a a beautiful picture here to me. And it's a a picture that, that, that I've seen in my life from my very earliest days as a young child at church. You have a man behind a pulpit with an open book. It all begins with a man, a pulpit, and a book. That's what we see here. That's how this revival and this reformation of the people begins. And that is still the church's greatest hope today. Now, what we need is not entertainers or entrepreneurs or marketers. We need those who can handle the Word of God accurately. As it's been stated by many in church history, we need people who are specialists in the Bible because there's no substitute for bringing the book. The Word of God is to be central to our services. And we see here in this passage, but throughout the New Testament as well, we see the primacy of preaching, the place and the priority of the Bible in the life of God's people. The the centrality and the supremacy of the Bible in the life of the church. Because I believe if you read through the scriptures, what God has promised to bless above everything else is the faithful, clear preaching and teaching of his word. That's what God promises to bless. Oh, we see that in the New Testament. If you go to the book of Acts, which is the, the narrative of the very beginning of the church, in the book of Acts, you know what you have in there? You have 20 sermons or speeches given by believers in, in the book of Acts. Some have called the book of Acts just a bunch of sermons stitched together, basically. I mean, it's the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Over in uh, 2 Timothy, some of the last words that the, the Apostle Paul Uh, wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he wrote these words uh, to Timothy. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. It means when, when preaching the Bible's in season, when it's popular, when it's not popular. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, I think those times of itching ears are here today. And uh, what we need to do is, the old saying, I love it, is to simply preach the Bible and preach the Bible simply. That's what God calls on us to do. Faithful preaching lets the Bible do the talking. There's a a story about John MacArthur I like. He was having um, lunch with Otis Chandler who owned the Los Angeles Times and other of many television affiliates, uh, major newspapers around America. And he had lunch with John MacArthur, and he said this, You know, John, you have a large audience. You're on the radio. You have a large congregation. I wonder why you don't give your opinion on the issues of the day. John MacArthur said, he smiled and said, now, Otis, do you really need another opinion? Now I like that. You know, you'll think about that. We really need another opinion out there today. And he said, Otis Chandler kind of laughed. And then John MacArthur said this to Otis Chandler, Otis, that's not my calling. My calling is not to give my opinion. My calling is to give God's opinion, to let God speak, to make the voice of God audible. And I like that. My job and the job of anyone who stands in this pulpit is to let God speak. And today, the focus in churches is so often more on experience than it is on the scriptures. Now, certainly if we come to to meet God in the scriptures, it will create an experience in our lives. But the focus is not just to have an experience. You know, liberals came many years ago and took the Bible away from God's people. They said, you know, the Bible is not authoritative, it's not reliable. They began to take the Bible away from the people of God. But today, with all the focus in many churches on experience, they're taking the people away from the Bible as God's final authority. And the job of pastors and teachers is to keep people focused on the Bible and to let God speak to us. And again, it's called the book of the law that Moses had given to Israel. At the time Ezra is speaking, the Old Testament law is a thousand years old. Yet that's still the message they need. In other words, they don't need a new message. They need to go back to the original message that God had given them. So our job is not to create a message, but it's to communicate the message that God has given to us. Now notice the sequence here in this passage. Verse 2, Ezra brought the law. And then notice in uh, verse five, Ezra opened the book. Then down in uh, verse uh, eight, and and they read from the book. And then the middle of verse eight, and they explained or gave the sense of of the meaning of it. So you follow this through. Ezra brought the book. He opened it. He read it, and they explained it. And that really is the essence of biblical preaching or Bible exposition. We read the Bible. We give the essence or the meaning of the Bible, and then we show how it applies to life. Now that word in verse 8, the, the New American Standard says they were translating the Bible to give it the sense. Some translations have, translate this word translating, others explaining. What some people believe is, is that so much time had gone by that these people who'd come back from Babylon and from Persia, the Jewish people spoke Aramaic, and that as Ezra was reading from the Torah, which was in Hebrew, they wouldn't have understood it clearly. And so these men that are scattered out among the people are translating it to them to help them understand it clearly. That's certainly possible, but The book of of, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the prophets, were written around this time. They were written in Hebrew, so I assume the people could read and understand Hebrew. So I don't think they were translating it to them. I think they were explaining it to them or giving them the sense or the meaning of it. And that's what we do when we study the Bible. We want to draw the meaning out of the text of Scripture to give the sense of the text or what it means. So when we study the Bible, the text establishes the agenda for the sermon. We don't come in with an agenda and impose that on the Bible. The Bible establishes the agenda for the sermon. It establishes the structure and the substance of what we say and what we preach. And of course, the job of teachers is to explain it in such a way that people can understand it and apply it to their lives five times in these verses you have the word understand that they could understand verse 13 it tells us that they might gain insight into the words of the law the goal was for the people to understand it to gain insight into it and then to apply it to their lives i love second uh, timothy 2:15 uh, paul told timothy there he says Uh, Be diligent to show yourself a workman approved, um, who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you need to be a workman, you need to be diligent, and you need to handle the word of truth accurately. Now in the Greek, what that word really means is to cut it straight. To handle the Bible accurately means to cut it straight. It was a word that was used of like cutting a straight road. So what it's saying is our exposition of the Bible should be so simple and direct that it resembles a straight road. In other words, it's easy to follow. I mean, you've all listened to people before, and it's like you're going off on some road. You don't know where you're going. You're down over here for a while, over there. No, it's to to cut a straight path through the Scriptures. So we're to cut it straight when it comes to the Bible. And, you know, a lot of people out there today are looking for ministry, you know, kind of cutting-edge ministry. I believe the teaching of the Word of God is the cutting-edge of ministry. In in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us the Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it divides asunder to soul and spirit. It's a discerner and a critic of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. To me, if you want to have a, a cutting edge ministry wherever it is, we need to, to to cut it straight with the Word of God. That's the sharp edge or the cutting edge of ministry. Look, ministry is not about the ladders and the mirrors and the swings. Certainly, we can have those things, but the focus is on the book. It's on the Scriptures. Uh, Carl Armerding was a great preacher from a generation ago, very faithful preacher of the Word of God, and he spoke one Sunday at uh, Moody, Moody Church in Chicago. And after he preached, he was out in the lobby, and there were some people out there talking about the sermon. Now, if you're a preacher, obviously you want to hear that, but there was a big pillar there between him and these two ladies talking about the sermon. And one lady said this to the other lady, I, didn't, I don't think that he's such a great preacher. All he did was explain the Bible, <laughs> Now, I like that. That's what we do, right? And that's what Ezra does here. They just explain the Bible. And if you read through the passage here, what it seems like was happening, Ezra opened the book, and he read it, and he read a section of the the Torah. Probably a lot of the reading was Deuteronomy. And he reads a section, and then notice it says in verse 8, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating it to give the sense so they understood the reading. Verse 7 says, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. These people are all gathered out there and Nehemiah would read a part and then these men who were gathered out there would get the people into groups and explain it to them and apply it to their lives. And then Nehemiah would read another part and they would do the same thing over and over again. And we'll see here in a few minutes, they did that for six hours straight. So it's just taking the Bible section by section, explaining it, and applying it to life. Most of you here know the name John Calvin. You know, Calvinism is associated with him. Uh, Last summer when Cheryl and I were on the sabbatical there and going around in Europe, we went to Geneva and got to go to St. Peter's Church where Calvin preached. And uh, Calvin was an incredible laborer in the Word of God We have 46 of his sermons in Thessalonians, 186 in Corinthians, 86 on the pastoral epistles, 159 sermons on Job, 353 on Isaiah, and 123 in Genesis. Now you know uh, he's one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, and the Reformation was led through the preaching of the Word of God. But on Easter day, 1538, he left the pulpit and then was banished from Geneva for three and a half years. And he didn't make it back to Geneva till September of 1541. And he'd been banished for three and a half years. And when he returned in September of 1541 to the pulpit, he picked up, picked up his exposition at the very verse where he'd left off three and a half years earlier. Now, I love that. The guy's been gone three and a half years. Open your Bibles, too. Picks right up as if he'd never left off. And the, the person who tells this story says, Calvin was demonstrating his unwavering commitment Uh, to expository preaching, just going through the Bible section by section, explaining it and applying it. Now, verse seven, I think does give some justification for small group settings to apply the Bible because it mentions the names of these men and these Levites, and they were explaining the Bible to the people and applying it to their lives, So no one person can answer all the questions and make all the applications. So it's good to break our church and our groups down into smaller groups where we can explain and apply the Bible further. I think the pulpit of any church kind of establishes the overall direction of the church, but smaller groups break it down and answer questions and apply it to life. And so I hope you're involved in some smaller setting and group here at Faith Bible Church. But the point here is is what we need is the Bible faithfully taught and vibrantly applied and passionately lived out. Uh, One other thing before we go to the people here. Look down at verse 13. On the second day, so this is the second day of the seventh month. This is the, the second day of this Bible conference. The heads of the father's households and all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So the second day, the women and the children didn't come, it was just the men. And he gathered the men. And why were the men gathered? That they could gain insight from the scriptures. And what was the point of that for them as the heads of their families to gain insight into the Bible and then to go and to share that with their wives and their children? They wanted these men to be men of the book. And I would ask all of you men here on Father's Day, are you a man of the book? Do you love the Bible? Do you read the Bible? Are you leading your family? To love and to live out of the scriptures. Are you living it yourself? Do you have an appetite for the scriptures? There's nothing more important that you will ever do as a father or as a grandfather than to teach your children and your grandchildren the word of God and to live it out before them in your life. It's the most important thing you can do. And to bring them to a place where they can hear the scriptures. Well, that's the responsibility here of the preacher. Now, what are the people supposed to do? What's the response of the people? Uh, It's interesting in this passage, the people dominate these verses. The word people occurs 13 times, all the people occurs nine times. So, the focus really in this passage is not on Ezra. If you'll read this passage, the most, most used words are the people and the book. The people and the book. The focus is on the people and the Bible as it's brought to them. So the pastor needs to faithfully preach, but the congregation has to faithfully listen and respond. My job every week is to do the best job that I can of clearly um, explaining, illustrating, and applying the Bible to our lives. But your job every Sunday is to be a faithful listener, to listen carefully to what you hear. I have to do hard work on my end And I try to do that because I believe there's no greater calling in all the world than to preach and teach the Word of God. But you have to do hard work on your end and it's not easy to listen. In fact, some of you may be thinking that right now as I'm talking. But it's not easy to to listen attentively and to to take in what God is saying. But but every Sunday we build a bridge together and I build half the bridge but you have to build the other half. I, I can't build the whole bridge. I build half of it You build the other half. And when that occurs, communication has taken place. And the Spirit of God can use His Word to apply it uh, to our hearts and our lives. Let me just mention really quickly four things about their listening. First of all, there was anticipation or expectation. The people are expectant. Now think about this. Back in that day, they didn't have their own copy of the Scriptures. And they're crying out to Ezra, Ezra, bring the book. And I don't know about you, but this humbles me to think of the fact that I've got Bibles all over my office, my office at the house, and and in our home. I mean, I don't know how many different Bibles and translations of the Bible I have. They didn't have the Bible for themselves. It had to be read to them and explained. And think about people in the world today who still don't have the Bible in their own language I think about this often at night. I I read a psalm before I go to bed every night. I go in my office, sit in my chair, the same place. Many nights I sit there and think to myself, I have the privilege. I'm reading the very words of God himself to me, and I have a copy of it myself. How easy it is to to just kind of take that for granted and uh, be a bit flippant about that. But don't take for granted the, the word of God that's been given to us. Look, both the preacher and the people need to come every Sunday with a sense of expectation and anticipation. I realize I can't expect you to get excited on a Sunday morning about what I'm talking about if I'm not excited about it. And probably most weeks, sometime near the middle or the end of the week, I'll just say to Cheryl in passing when we're somewhere, I'll say, man, I'm really getting excited about this passage for this Sunday. And every week I, I get excited about what God has given me. And I want you to be excited about it as well. And we see here in, in, in Nehemiah 8, the people want the Bible. They, they call out to Ezra and say, bring the book. And I'm so thankful for a hungry congregation of people here at Faith Bible Church. Um, every week when I come here, it's as if I could hear in my mind, really all of you saying, bring the book. Uh, preach the word to us. In fact, uh, uh, you all are such a patient group. I mean, I, I think people are saying, look, lay it on us. You know, we, we want uh, the word of God. Uh, given to us in our lives. And that's the attitude we need to come with, a sense of anticipation and expectation. The second thing is attention. Notice in verse 3, says the men and the women who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In fact, literally it says the ears of the people were to the law of Moses. They had ears to hear. There was a vitality and an urgency to their listening. They were dialed in to what was happening. And again, it was men, women, and children, but it says all those who could understand. So it was people who were old enough who could understand uh, what was being taught. And this went on for six hours from the morning till midday. I mean, think of that without a coffee break even. I mean, six hours straight. You're just standing there. And it takes work for them to listen and to hear and to assimilate what's, what's being given. It's an old preacher's uh, saying I heard years ago that says, preaching is the art of talking in another person's sleep. And uh, sometimes it's that way. We don't have many sleepers anymore in our church. We used to have a few people that'd sack out every week. And I just felt like, well, if I could provide that service to them, whatever, you know. <laughs> I'm not too many sleepers these days. Uh, but we, we need to be attentive when we come to hear the Word of God. It's like a professor that was invited to speak at a seminary. He welcomed the students with these words. I understand I'm here to speak to you, and you're here to listen to me. Let's hope we both finish at the same time. And I always hope that every Sunday. I hope we get finished at the same time, that my preaching and your listening uh, arrive at the same time. But we need to be attentive and awake. So we need anticipation. We need attention. But notice in verse 5 and 6, there's adoration. When he opens the book, the people just stood up. It was spontaneous. He he didn't tell them to do it. They just stood up. And then we read in verse 6 that he prayed, and the people said, Amen, Amen, or so be it. And then they bowed low, and they fell down with their faces uh, to the ground. So the people rose to their feet, and then they fell down to their knees. Now, this is not saying here that we're to worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship God. But we honor and we revere the Bible because God's words are recorded in the Bible. It reveals God to us. So we love the Bible and we honor the Bible because it makes God known to us. So the people aren't worshiping the Bible, but they're honoring the Bible because it's through the Bible that they can come to know who God is. The last thing we see that the people do here is application. They respond to the message. And this is one of the most important things because we can hear the Bible, we can understand the Bible, we can gain insight into the Bible, but ultimately the purpose of the Bible is to transform our lives, for us to apply it. In verse 9, the people begin to mourn and they begin to weep. I mean, the, the truth hit them hard and it hurt them because they realized how far short they were from the standard. And a lot of people say today, well, you know, it's not good to make people feel guilty. Well, there is a bad kind of guilt, but there's a good kind of guilt. A guilt that transforms us and changes us and, and turns us around. And so for the, for the people, there's, they heard the Bible for these six hours and heard it explained and applied. It exposed their sin and it began to grieve them over their failures. And there's weeping and contrition. And often we hear today, people say, well, I don't want to go to church and have somebody make me feel bad. We kind of want sermons that are more upbeat and make us feel good. Well, look, if a sermon makes you feel bad and feel guilty, what I would say is you're going to feel worse, but then you're going to feel better later. That's, that's That's the way the gospel message is. What's the gospel? The gospel message is you're a sinner and you're separated from God. And without God, you're spiritually bankrupt. Now, when you first hear that, that's going to make you feel bad. It should make you feel desperate. But then the good news is, is that God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to come and to die in our place on the cross and to purchase a free pardon for us of all of our sins and give us the gift of eternal life through simply trusting and believing in him. But you have to feel worse before you feel better. That's the gospel message. And the same thing is true with the scriptures in our lives. As we come and we read the Bible and the Bible is applied to our hearts and lives, the Bible may make us feel worse, but when we begin to live it out and we confess our sins to the Lord, we're going to feel better. We'll feel pure and clean. We'll go forth in power to live for him. Look, we have to be doers of the word. We cannot simply be hearers of it. And one of the things I see the most out there in Christianity today is people who claim to love the Lord and love the Bible, but there's a massive disconnect between what they say and what they do. Now all of us have a disconnect in some way where none of us are perfect. Don't talk about major massive disconnect between that. There's not an application of the Bible to their lives. It's like a a gray-haired old lady one time. She was a long member of the community and the church. And she shook hands with the pastor after the sermon. And she said, that was a wonderful sermon. Just wonderful. Everything you said applies to someone I know. And now that's the way we are a lot of times. We either just don't apply it to ourselves or we maybe think of all the other people we know that need to apply this to their lives. Look, it's not enough to hear the Bible and to understand it and to gain insight. We have to apply it. To our lives. That's what it ultimately comes down to. We have to obey it uh, ourselves. There's a story of an old street preacher, and he was out. He would go out and preach the gospel. And one time, when he was preaching, there was a man who had scraggly hair and a scraggly beard. He was just dirty. His clothes were all dirty. And as this preacher was preaching the gospel, this man keep yelling, kept yelling out, "Look, we've had Christianity for two thousand years, and it hasn't done any good. I mean, look at all the problems in our society." The preacher kept going on preaching. The guy says, look, we've had Christianity for 2,000 years and it hasn't done any good. Finally, this preacher couldn't stand it anymore. And he looked at the guy and he said, we've had soap for just as long. And what good has it done to you? <laughs> Pretty cutting, right? But the same thing that's true of the Bible is true of the soap. Or the same thing that's true of the soap is true of the Bible. You've got to use it, right? You've got to rub it into your life to to cleanse you and apply it uh, to your heart and to your life. Look, we have to apply the scriptures to our lives. In fact, you could say this, we only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. So I, I believe all the Bible. Well, we only really believe as much of the Bible as we practice and we live out in our lives. And so my prayer for all of us here, but especially as fathers, for myself today, as grandfathers, there will be people who understand the Bible, who want insight into the Bible, but who apply the Bible to our lives. So when we come here on Sundays to Faith Bible Church, my job is to come and to bring the book and to open it and to explain it to us and to read it and to apply it to our lives. That's what God's called me to do. What God has called you to do, is to come with a sense of anticipation and expectation, uh, to give attention and and adoration and reverence to the Bible, and to apply it to your life. My prayer is that as we await the Lord's coming, that God will help us as a church to always be faithful, each of us to fulfill these mutual reciprocal responsibilities that God's given to us, so we can be a people that are prepared when Jesus comes. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you that Jesus Christ has come and given us good news. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus, that they're going to be alarmed this morning and shocked to realize that they're in desperate condition before a holy God like you without Jesus, and that they'll flee to Jesus Christ for salvation. They'll believe in him and trust in him as their Savior. I'll do it right now, right where they sit. Father, I thank you for all of our fathers and grandfathers here today. Father, not all of us will be Bible scholars, but, but, but whatever measure we can read and study the Bible, help us to be men of the book. And Father, help us to live it out, not just to understand it, but to live it. And help us to teach it to our families, to our children, and for our lives and, and our, our families to be impacted by the Word of God. Father, I thank you for this church and for people who come here every week with hungry hearts and who support this ministry and help us in what we're doing here. I pray that you'll protect this pulpit until Jesus comes and only truth will be proclaimed from it. Father, help us to simply preach the Bible, to preach the Bible simply. And I pray that you'll use your written word every week in our lives to transform us into the image of that living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make us more like him. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.